This is a relatively short parak, chapter 12. Chapter 12, parak Yidbet, and like chapter Yud, are sort of transitional chapters, which kind of give you parts of a story, but they're really kind of filling in the background of Shoftim between the, the, um, major, the major judge stories. Okay, so chapter 12, I, I like to look first at this, uh, this particular edition because it shows you the paragraphing. The first section is, you see it's a short paragraph, it's only 15 psukim. The first, uh, um, <clears throat> first section is seven psukim, and that's the end of the story of Yiftah, which is quite, oh, shall we say, in keeping with the rest of Yiftah, a little bit on the uh, disturbing side, yeah, and then we have three other Shoftim. We have Iftsan, Elon, and Avdon. And just as we saw in chapter 10, right, in chapter 10, we had the story of Tola and we had Yair. In the same sense, Iftsan, Elon, and Avdon are much more minor figures that we just get a little bit about them. And that keeps what we call in Hebrew the retzef. In other words, we're keeping up the historical portion of Sefer Shoftim, but the main events of Sefer Shoftim are the ones with the, you know, the longer discussions of the Shoftim. And we have a lot more to learn from these particular um, stories. Okay, so in order to really understand the story of Yiftach in chapter 12, we should really go back a little bit first to chapter 11 and just recap what's been going on. And that is that Yiftach starts life as an outcast and he is <clears throat> the son of Azona, it says, which is not a nice expression. We don't like that, but apparently there are many, many different ways of understanding it. One of them being that this woman is either a second-rate wife, a pedlegish, a concubine, without ketuba or kedushin, or that she is um, that she's a woman from a different tribe. And intermarriage between the tribes was not uh, was not done. It was there was a sort of taboo, starting with the daughters of Tzlovchad, who were asked to marry within the tribe so that the, the ancestral inheritance would not move from tribe to tribe. From after that, it became a thing that you should marry within the tribe. So this is a suggestion that one of the problems with um, Yiftach's mother was that she was from a different tribe. Now, be that as it may, it says clearly that Gilad is his father. <clears throat> and it's um, a very wrong thing that happens. His brothers throw him out and he goes off to be, you know, uh, <clears throat> an outcast. Let's see. This is the, the map um, of the tribes at this point in time. And you see that Menashe, Menashe is very much, and this is, comes very important in chapter 12. Menashe is divided between the west side of the Jordan and the east side of the Jordan. And this area is called Gilad. And his father, Gilad, was an important person. And Gilad was a real uh, major Menashe name. 
and he probably lived in this area, Mitzpah. And at the time of chapter 11, they are threatened, the Jewish people are threatened by Amon. Amon is here on the eastern flank of the uh, two and a half tribes, Ruben, Gad, and Menashe. And the elders of Gila decide that they want to take Yiftach back. They take him back. He drives a hard bargain. He's a toughie. He's a shrewd guy and he's been abused and he doesn't take anything from anybody. And um, he insists on being the leader. And in many, many ways, we are invited to contrast Yiftach's behavior with Gidon. So Gidon is not an outcast, but Gidon is also from Menashe. He's from Menashe on the west side. And he also becomes the leader. Gidon becomes the leader because an angel sees, uh, sees him and, and tells him that he's the leader. He is uh, accrued great merit. And Yiftach becomes a leader because they need you know, a strong man and the elders come to him. It isn't as, as if it comes from God. In addition to that, we see that his behavior is somewhat um, less refined uh, and definitely less humble than Gido. And that contrast becomes very marked in Parakid Bet. We see at the beginning also in, in Parakid Aleph, he negotiates with Amon as the leader of the Jewish people <clears throat> in a very, uh, his manner is extremely, for want of a better word, I would say pompous, like, you know, Allah, you know, and he calls himself, he, he gives himself the, he identifies himself as like the leader, as the people, uh, what is with me and you, and Amon, and he gives him a whole bunch of reasons why Amon has no right to argue, but of course, like all our enemies, Amon says, who cares, if you give me my territory, I will make peace. <laughs> Where have we heard that before? Give me territories for peace. And uh, he won't listen, and they go out to war. And then comes the infamous vow. He makes a vow that whoever comes out to greet him, if, if God gives Amun in his hand, whoever comes out to greet him, when he comes back victorious, that, that, um, <clears throat> he would, uh, that thing is going to be a sacrifice. I will raise it up to God. I don't know uh, what Yiftach was thinking. <clears throat> we went to this very, very sad story at the end of chapter 11, where um, his daughter is the one who comes out. He's devastated. I, uh, it's not clear what he exactly expected. You know, who's going to come out to greet him when he comes out from war, if not his family. And um, a lot of them at first try to do some damage control. And they say, well, he didn't really sacrifice her. He just turned her into a hermit and she lived her life alone and uh, it was very sad and all this, but uh, the Ramban sort of, you know, blasts that argument to smithereens and says, you know, Jews don't do nuns. He didn't make her a nun. This is not what we do. He killed her. He was all wrong. And um, for some reason, he, could, he couldn't see that there was a possibility of getting out of this vow. And <clears throat> uh, last time we looked at the Medrash where he, uh, he was able to 
be much of the neder. And Pinchas was the only one who knew that he could do that, that he could go out of this vow. And he refused to go to Pinchas because he felt that he, as the leader of the people, shouldn't have to go to anyone. And Pinchas should come to him. And Pinchas said, well, I'm the Kohen Gadol. I don't have to go to him. And the Medrash says very sadly, between the two of them, this poor girl is lost. So it's clear that the opinion of Chazal is that she was actually sacrificed, even though a lot of the Mefarshim have a very, very hard time with this. But I wanted to clarify here this story a little bit and explain that one of the things, one of the things that we have to be aware of in this second half of Sefer Shoftim is that the influence of the nations that surround the Jewish people is becoming stronger and stronger. And it's going to culminate in the terrible stories that happen at the end of the book in chapter 17 to 21. But you see it already creeping in here. The thought that you could sacrifice another human being, that's not a Jewish idea, right? That comes from the surrounding nations. And that's something that seems to, to Yiftach in his perverted way, he thinks that this is a big mitzvah. He promised this to God and he's giving this to God. And right, the, uh, you know, the, the Navi in Yemiyahu says, I never thought of such a thing and it was never part of my plan. That's one big problem that we see creeping in. We also begin to see other evil influences of the nations around us. And I think this is something that we really have to pay attention to. Um, and that is um, how the Jewish people are influenced negatively by the nations around them. So we see this with the, with the sacrifice of the daughter of Yiftah, which is a tragedy of un, you know, unbelievable. And now we see a story which is also part of the Yiftah story, which is also very disturbing. Okay, so chapter 12, Perak Yudbet. So it's very, very difficult to get into the head of these people. We have to try to do that. The people of Ephraim, as one man, gather, they cross over, probably the indication is that they, they crossed over the, the Jordan and they went to Yiftah, they crossed over north, it says. Some people say north is a place, but it seems like Ephraim is over here and they come across here and they come to Yiftah and they say, why did you cross to, to fight with the sons of Ammon and you didn't call us to go with you? We will burn your house on you in fire. I mean, you know what they used to say in America, them's fighting words. This is a shocking story. Now, for those of you who were with me in chapter eight, I wanna go back and show you, this is not a new story, okay? In chapter eight, Pasuk Aleph, by Yomu and Lavi Shephaim, now that the, the Shofi here is Gidon. So if you remember the story, Gidon has a very different reaction than Yiftach, I want you to no take note. And 
And the men of Ephraim said to Gideon, How, what is this thing that you've done to us that you didn't call us when you went to fight against Midian? And they argued with him with strength. Now, first of all, for us women, it's impossible to understand. You won the war, Yashikayach! <laughs> this is such a guy thing. What on earth could possess you to complain after he won the war against the enemies to say, why didn't you call us to fight with you? It's such a crazy thing. So we have to try to analyze what's wrong with these B'nai Ephraim. So the, the, basic, the basic bottom line is we have to really go back to the rivalry between Ephraim and Menashe. Back in the day, in, in Parshas Vayechi, when Yaakov gives a bracha to the sons of Yosef, he, Yosef positions Menashe on his, on his right so that he'll get the right-handed bracha, and Ephraim on his left because Menashe is older. And Yaakov crosses his hands and he gives the, the right-handed bracha to Ephraim. Yosef is disturbed, and Yosef says, you know, uh, you, you got it wrong, Dad. You know, uh, Menashe is the older. And now Yaakov says, Yadati. Yadati, Bani Yadati, I know. Menashe will also be great, but Ephraim, yeah, Meloa Goyim. He will be great among the whole world. And this is uh, the Chazal's understanding of this is a reference to Yeshua. Yeshua was such a great leader, and he stopped the sun, and the whole world knew about the greatness of Yeshua. So there seems to have been, since that time, a kind of rivalry because Menashe is also great, Ephraim is also great. So in chapter eight, when Gideon becomes the, the, the uh, shofet, the leader of the Jewish people, and he has a successful war, and he becomes this great person. So the men of Ephraim, and, and this is, I'm giving the general understanding of the Mepharshim because the, everyone has a slightly different take on it, but the general understanding is that this is jealousy and arrogance and a feeling like you have no right. You have no right to be the leader. We're the leader, we're the boss. What's going, what's, how do you? You're only Menashe. But here you see the difference between Gidon and Yiftah. Gidon is a consummate diplomat. He's a humble person. He doesn't want to have a fight. And he says to them, listen, you guys, Ephraim is so much greater than Menashe. You captured the kings. You're terrific. Plus a gimbal here. He said, you, God gave you the, the offices of Midian. What could I do like you? And we see there the, the humility and the amazing diplomacy of a Gidon who can, who can make them, who can stroke their, their egos and make them feel so great so that they back down. And here it says, us. Then, after he spoke like that, they calmed down. But the word us is very telling because they, they're calmed down, but not entirely. The story is not over yet. But you see here a very, very important lesson for us. And that is, it says in Mishle, a soft answer will turn away anger. And it's really, really something critical to understand. Gideon didn't have to do this. Gideon didn't have to say, oh, you guys are amazing. I could have done it without you. How, you did the most important stuff. 
he could have said, you know, go to hell. I won the war. God help me. Where do you come off? How dare you come starting up with me now? You have no right to do that. But Gino was smart enough. So we say sometimes it's not always important to be right. It's important to be smart. Gino saw that it was all ego. They needed their ego stroked. And he didn't mind humbling himself, putting himself down in order to make them feel better. It was important to him to make them feel better. And that's a tremendous thing. Now let's go to Yiftach. Same story. However, since it's the second time, not the first time Ephraim feels itself slighted, left out, and by a Menashe leader, how dare you? So their language is much stronger. It's not they argued with him with strength. It's a threat, right? We're going to burn your house down on you. They're threatening to kill him and burn his house down. So Yiftah has a much more difficult situation than Gidon had, because Yiftah has to deal with this threat. And Yiftah is not a humble person. We've seen it time and again. Malibullah, he says to the king of Ammon, what's with me and you, right? Koamar Yiftah, he tells the king of Ammon. Thus says Yiftah. He's very full of himself. His life as an outcast has left its mark on him, the Das Mikra says. Left its mark in his personality. He's got a huge chip on his shoulder. And don't mess with me, guys. And he's not capable or not willing to pull himself down, to be humble, to calm these people down. On the other hand, they don't actually deserve a lot of consideration because they're very, very aggressive and jealous and insulting. But his reaction is going to be like oil in a fire. Prasik Ben. I, Ani, Ani, me and my nation had a big fight with Bnei Amon. Don't forget the oppression of Amon was 18 years, right? Ma'od, it was really problematic. We had a lot of trouble with Amon. And this is his first complaint. You know, it was actually, if you look at the map, okay, what happened with the Midianites the Midianites came from the southeast in the time of Gidon. They crossed the Jordan. They overran the whole West Bank here. They destroyed all the property, all the food. Everyone suffered from Midian. And in fact, Gidon called the northern tribes to help him. But not Yiftah. Yiftah is on this side. He's basically the one who suffered from Amon. It's not really necessary to get other people involved. So there's, he says, I, I had the problem with Amun for 18 years. Pasik bet. But as I caught you, but you didn't help me. You didn't save me from their hands. Where were you when I needed you? Now, it's not clear if that is a statement or a rhetorical question. In other words, he could have said, he could be saying, I called you and you didn't come. But it seems more likely that he's saying, if I had called you, would you have come? 
Nobody saved us. Nobody was helping us. And I saw that no one's helping us and I risked my life. I put my soul in my hand, which is an expression for risking my life. And I crossed the sons of Ammon by Yidnei Hashem Biyadi, and God gave them in my hand. He doesn't forget God. Why are you coming in now fighting with me? You didn't come fight with Ammon. Now you're coming to fight with me. So you see that Yiftach's reaction, right, is also very aggressive. He doesn't do the get on thing. Okay, guys, I'm sorry. I should have thought of it. You guys are really better. And don't forget, Yiftach is has been living as an outcast. So on the one hand, the B'nai Ephraim are even more insulted that a Menashe person becomes the leader who's, who's he's just Yiftach. That, that, you know, you know uh, poor Yifas you know, vagabond, like him, right? So it's worse for them. And on the other hand, from Yiftach's point of view, it was like, you know, he's he's got more invested in protecting his own name. So both sides here are very culpable. I mean, they're they're jealous, they're insulting, right? They have no right to complain after he won the war, the Ralbag says, right? Right? <clears throat> Right? They should have been grateful to him, the Ralbaxons. How do they come and complain? But you see, he takes it badly and he responds aggressively. And they start out with this threat. And, you know, between both sides, we have something terrible about to happen. Pasik Dalit. And Yiftach takes all the men of Gilad and he fights Ephraim, an actual terrible civil war. Uh, the first, I believe, and not the last, right, among the Jews. And the men of Gilad struck Ephraim, because they said, this particular phrase is extremely, extremely difficult. And uh, a lot of um, ink is spilled over this one. <clears throat> and I'm going to go straight with Rashi because it makes uh, uh, the most sense here. And if you, it, the trump isn't clear here, but if you look in a, in a regular Tanakh, you'll see that the trump follows Rashi. The people of Ephraim, the Plite Ephraim, the refugees of Ephraim, in other words, the uh, the lower level Ephraim said, Atem Gilad, you Gilad, what are you? Betoch Ephraim, Betoch Menashe. Getting back to our map. In other words, the people of Ephraim, right, tell the, the people of Gilad here, you guys are nothing, right? Menashe, the real Menashe is on the West Bank. And Ephraim, we're here. We're even greater than Menashe. But you, you're on the other side of the river. You're just a piece of Menashe. You're nobody. And that is a really uh, what they call in Brooklyn, again, those fighting words, right? 
So the people of Gilad do a, a, a number here, Pasuk Hei, Vayilkod Gilad et Marbrot HaYardei Lefrayim, Vahayaki Yomu Plite Efrayim Ebora, Vayomu Lo Anshe Gilad Heafratieta, Vayomer Lo. Okay, so Yiftach and the Giladim have their first victory against the, uh, the men of Ephraim, and that's in Pasuk Dalet, right? They strike them, and they, the people of Ephraim have mocked them. In other words, it seems from Pasuk Dalet that the mockery made everything worse because they said, who, are you, who do you think you are? And all of Gilad was on Yiftach's side, and they fight, and they win. At the end of this battle, right, Gilad captures the fords of the Jordan. And again, over here, the, the Jordan goes down the whole length from the Kinera to the Dead Sea. And if you see in the map, you could see that the, <clears throat> there are certain places, I mean, even today, the Jordan has places that are more full and less full. So the Ma'avarot are the, are the fords, the places where you could easily cross over. So the people of Ephraim are on the run because the, the, more, the more fierce fighters of, of Gilad and Yiftach have won this war. So the people of Ephraim are attempting to go across the Jordan and escape back to the land of Ephraim. But they have captured the fords. Now we've seen this tactic before. We saw it in the time of Ehud in chapter three, when, um, you know, uh, Ehud stops the, the Moabites on, on either side of the Jordan with this tactic. And we saw Gidon use it in chapter seven, where he stops them from going, uh, from running away, the Midianites. And now you see they're using it against their own people. He, they close the, the, the fords, the uh, Ephraim. I mean, Gilad closed it against Ephraim. When the people of Ephraim came, they said, I want to cross. The people of Gilad said, are you from Ephraim? Now, at this point in time, if you were from Ephraim, it was not really a smart thing to admit that because they were going to kill you, right? He says, no, 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 no. Do I look like Ephraim? I'm not Ephraim, no, because how would you know, right? And they devised a test, passing by. Very strange story. They said, say shibolet, and they said, sibolet. They could not pronounce the shin. They weren't able to speak that way. So this was the sign that they were Ephraim people because they couldn't pronounce the shin. By Yochazuoto, and they, they seized him. By Yishchatuhu, and they slaughtered him El Mabro Tedin over the fords. By Yipol Ba'itahim Ephraim Arbaim Ushtayim Elaf. And they slaughtered these Ephraim guys who were trying to run away, and they fell at that time from Ephraim 42,000 people, which is insane, incredible, horrific. Now, let's talk about this for a minute, shibolet. So, first of all, shibolet could mean an ear of corn. Shibolet uh, could also mean a stream. So they apparently picked a shin word that was something related to the, 
to the Jordan, to the river, and they said she bullet, as if this was a natural thing to say. And this was a test to see if they're from a Ephraim or not. And it seems that different dialects developed in the country <clears throat> so that the, the people of different areas spoke differently. And, you know, Rashi suggests that they stuttered, right? They stuttered. But um, it seems as if from the other Mepharshim, for a doc in particular, let's see. Right. They couldn't say it, he said, because the, the, the air of that land caused that. Like the people of France can't say a shin today. Now, that actually very, very interesting for me personally, and that is that um, my father-in-law my father-in-law could not say a shin. This was actually um, a thing in many parts of Lithuania. And a lot of it, Rev. Yaakov Kamenetsky discusses it. He says, a lot of times you'll see that Sfarim and Ashkenazim coming from different countries pronounce things differently. The Yemenites pronouncing that they'll have a different iron, right? Different things because of where you live and whom you live with. And it was something that when I first started teaching this, I'm like, this is startling because my, yeah, obviously her name is Shurin. <laughs> my father-in-law could not say Shin, he was Surin. And if you met him, he would say, on, on Friday, he would say, good Sabbath. Literally, he could not say a Shin. My mother-in-law was also from Lita, from Lithuania, but she could. So it's interesting where you came from. So I really understood this part of the story very, very, very clearly because there's some people cannot pronounce these things. But it was kind of a horrifying thing that they, they laid in wait, they trapped them and they shechted them. And if you look at the word Vayeshchatuhu, slaughtered, this should sort of remind you of the daughter of Yiftah, okay? And Das Sofrim says he was ruthless with his daughter. He was ruthless with the Bnei Ephraim. He had no mercy on either of them. And there are uh, uh, opinions in the Chazal, and this makes a lot of sense to me personally, that the story of the civil war here and the, the killing of 42,000 of Ephraim, this actually happened before the story of Yiftach's daughter. And the story of Yiftach's daughter was actually a punishment to Yiftach for having killed so many people of Ephraim. If you think about it, it makes sense logically because he was coming back victorious from the war and they didn't let him finish the war. They instigated another war. So it wasn't until he came home that he found her coming out to greet him. Why was that story put first? It seems as if the, the, the telling of that story followed right after the actual vow. So you saw how the vow played out. And by the way, the Chazal have a lot of discussions about different vows that I didn't have time to talk to you about last week. But just as an example, they go through different people who made vows and show you how the vows turned out for them. And uh, <clears throat> You know, Eliezer, I think I did mention Eliezer, 
he made a condition. And if you took the, the, the lesson from the different, there's a number of midrashim talking about the different people, the different vows they made and the different conditions they made. The lesson that you might extract from it is that if you make such a vow, it has to have some sort of uh, logic behind it. So that Eliezer was expecting you know, a tremendous Balat Chesed to be the correct wife for Yitzchak, and that sort of, and God helped him with that. But the vow that Yitzchak made was completely illogical and um, totally, it sort of asked for a human sacrifice. It was like, the thing that comes out of my house to greet me, what do you think that's going to be? It's going to be a human being, your wife, your daughter, your servant. So this sort of like this sort of idea of human sacrifice was there in Yiftach's mind, it seems. So Yiftach is a, is a very, very flawed character. Let's just finish with him. I have a couple more things to say and then we'll go on. Pasuk Zion, And Yiftach judges your six years, and Yiftach died. And he was buried in the cities of Gilad. Now, this is a very bizarre expression because you cannot really be buried in more than one city. And so the Chazal right away pick up on this and they say he was actually buried in several cities in Gilad, right? And it says here, um, That's Mitsudas. No, uh, now, now I have to see this in another parashan. The, the Medrash explains that here. So I'm not finding it in, inside, but the, the idea of this Medrash is that um, because he had his daughter um, taken apart, dismembered as a sacrifice, and of course, because 42,000 people of Ephraim were slaughtered, so he was punished with a kind of uh, disease where his limbs fell off. It sounds to me like some kind of gangrene, you know, and every place where a limb fell off, they would bury that limb. Kind of uh, horrible. But you see that Gilad is really um, in the thought of Chazal, you know, they call him Grofit Shel Shikmai, a, a base shoot of a, of a lowly tree that he was considered probably probably the the most minor of all the judges and the least admirable and here you see that after six years of leading he dies and he kind of dies this kind of creepy death that we're told about and interestingly enough we have a very important to less, lesson to learn from Yifta, which I want to share with you right now. But let me just mention one other thing, okay? And that's here. Okay, if you remember, we talked about the cycle of Shoftim. I told you the Shoftim is the outline, the introduction, the chronological list of the judges, three to 16. The next four chapters will be about Shimshon. And that's going to be like the last major shofar that we talk about. And then the two stories showing the spiritual decline. And we talked about the cycle. Now, if you look at the cycle here, B'nai Israel sin, okay. Hashem punishes them through their enemies, Amon, sure. They cry out to Hashem, okay. Hashem sends a judge here. 
the judge is actually appointed by the elders of um, Gilad. And it's Yiftach. And when he's finished, we don't have peace. There's nothing saying, and there were 40 years of peace. So the cycle is broken. After chapter 10, the cycle is broken. It's even more broken with Shimshon, but we'll get to that later. And one other thing I want to show you here. One second. Um, and that is, okay, an important teaching of the Chazal, okay? In the Gemara and Rosh Hashanah, it says, so I'll give you the background here. I got to go to the whole thing. I have it there for you in English as well, if you could see it. But the Gemara Rosh Hashanah talks about um, when Shmuel is appointing a king for the Jewish people in chapter <clears throat> 12, I believe. And he gives them a little bit of a history. And he says, Hashem made the great leaders motion, Aaron. And he sent also Yerubal. Yerubal is another name for Gidon. And Bedan, that's another name for Shimshon, from he was from Dan. And Yiftah and Shmuel. This is a prophecy, so he speaks about himself in third person. And he says, and the Gemara says, Moshevarim b'kohen abishmuel b'koreh shmo. In Tehillim 99, we are, we are shown that Shmuel is great, like Moshe and Aaron. These are the great three great leaders. Shokal hakatuv shlosha kale olam kishlosha chamure olam. The text in Shmuel, in this story, weighs the three great leaders, Moshe, Aaron, and Shmuel, with the three Kale Olam, not such great leaders, who are Gidon, Yiftach, and Shimshon. And this is to teach us something, Lomar Lecha, and a very important lesson. Yerubal Bedoro, Kemosha Bedoro. Bidan bedoro ka'aron bedoro, yiftach bedoro ka'shmol bedoro. Lilamdecha, shafilu kal shibakalin minit bana parnasal hatsipur, harehu ka'abir shibabirim. A very, very important principle in Judaism. A leader, even, even a leader who's a less than terrific leader, okay, we have this comparison, right? Gidon in his generation was like a Moshe Rabbeinu. Shimshon in his generation was like Aaron. Yiftach in his generation was like Shmuel. How can we say such a thing? The Gemara says, because we want you to learn that your leader that you have is the leader that you have. Whoever comes in your generation, that's the leader that you have. And that's the leader that you have to follow. But Omer, the Gemara continues, this is in Devarim, in Shoftim, right? A strange phrase, Rashi comments. What do you mean? You'll go to the judge that you have in those days? And the Gemara says, Does it ever occur to a person to go and ask a judge who isn't in that generation? I would like to consult the Chavetz Chaim today, right? Uh, you, well, he's dead. Hello. You can't consult him, right? So, you cannot go except to the judge that is in your days. But Omar, and the, continues to say, 
And you can't start saying, well, you know, I'm sorry. I would really much rather consult the Vilna Gaon than the rabbis of today. I really have, I really, you know, I mean, I, I'd like to go ask from Jacob Kamenetsky. It's over. Those generations are over. And the only leaders you have, the leaders you have. And it's a very, very fascinating discussion, which we don't have a lot of time to go into. But I'll just say that one of the things I heard that is a very interesting comparison, like just as we, right, in a certain sense, we have the leaders that we deserve. In another sense, we also have the leaders that we can most relate to. And if you think about it, you think about Moshe Rabbeinu, there's a tremendous Gemara that shows Moshe Rabbeinu coming into the, the base medrash of Rabbi Akiva and not really following what was going on. It's a kind of crazy Gemara. It's a long, long and interesting discussion. But the Gemara is like Moshe Rabbeinu, it's like he's sitting in the, in the, in the base medrash and they're talking about things that he doesn't really understand. And so Rabbi Akiva says, this is halacha le Moshe Misinai. And then Moshe calms down and says, oh, I guess I'm still part of the picture. Every generation has the leaders that it can relate to. And every leader has a generation that, it can, that he can relate to. So this is a tremendous lesson in Judaism, a tremendous thought for us to understand. That even though Yiftach was the most, uh, I, I would say probably the least considered, considered the least great of all the judges, he's put together in the Gemara with Shmuel saying he was as great in his generation as Shmuel was. Very hard for us to comprehend, but what you have is what you have. And the, the way to really um, improve the quality of the leadership is to improve the quality of the lay people. And this is something that's mutual. In other words, if the leaders work harder at improving the quality of the, of the uh, people, so then the people will have a greater leader. And the greatest example, of course, is, is Shmuel himself, who was, you know, what I, I like to laugh about, I like to say, he, he was the first Chabad rabbi, because he made a circuit, he went around and he did Kirov and he brought people closer. And he effected a tremendous sea change in, in the Jewish world that had been going downhill, deteriorating as the story of Sefer Shoftim shows us being influenced by all the people around them and slowly, slowly going down and, you know, a gradual decline. And when Shmuel comes on the scene in the next Sefer, he's able to pull them back up to tremendous level. So the leader and the people go hand in hand. We have to raise ourselves up and Bezrat Hashem that will give us greater leaders. Okay, so now we go to the shorts, okay? Pasachet, Yisrael, now, Iftzan is someone we never heard of, but he's from Beit Lechem. And we have, we have another story that happens at the time of the judges in the Megillah of Ruth, right? And we have the great uh, person, Boaz, who we understand is the leader of the generation. So the Chazal connect Iftzan of Beit Lechem with Boaz. Pasik Tet. He was a judge for 70 years, and he had 30 sons and 30 daughters. <laughs> These guys, they really, oh, 
It's actually funny to me. Of course, it's not funny, but if you contrast him to poor Yiftach, who had one daughter who never had children, you see that this is this was a much more standard situation in terms of the judges. Gidon has 70 sons, and it's interesting because there also we see brother killing brother, and here we see brothers killing brothers, not uh, actually maybe not the first civil war that went on. But here, I want to point out here, when it says he, Shilachachutza, he sent them out. So there's an opinion that he married them off to people from different tribes. And he was trying to um, destroy the taboo on intermarrying between tribes because of what happened with Yiftach's mother. Yiftach's mother was treated as an outcast, and Yiftach himself became an outcast. And again, I mentioned that, uh, you know, they said to him, his brothers, the, the sons of Gidon's other wife, said, Ben Isha Acheret, you're the son of another woman. So here, um, Yiftach, that is Boaz, makes a point of making sure that tribes intermarry and that, that that's no longer a taboo. And he judges for seven years. Um, I'm going to tell you the Medrash on Ifsan, but I don't like it. I'll tell you on the outset, I don't like it, but I like to make sure that you know what you, you know what's the score. The Medrash says that, um, and this is the Gemara, the Gemara talks about it, that <coughs> um, <coughs> he made all these weddings for all these children and he never invited Manoach. Manoach is the father of Shimshon. And he had no children. We'll find out about that in the next chapter. We'll have to wait a few weeks for chapter 13, which is really one of my favorite chapters. It's a magical chapter. Uh, beautiful story. And Noah has no children at this point. <coughs> and Shibshon is a miracle baby. He was born much later. At this point in time, Noah has no children. And Ifsan doesn't invite him to any of his weddings because he cannot reciprocate. And the Gemara says it's not because he was cruel, because he didn't want to obligate Manoach and he wasn't able to give him back. But I think that um, the Gemara is trying to tell you that, you know, this was wrong, wrong on the part of, of Ibsen. Radak says, uh, Radak sort of indicates that he doesn't like this Medrash. I don't like it either. I think knowing the kindly nature of Boaz in the story of Ruth and his generosity to the Skioris, it's hard to imagine him doing something as sort of <clears throat> hurtful to a, uh, a man with no children. I have a hard time with this Medrash, just telling you. That's the Medrash. Okay. <clears throat> and Iftan died. Vayama Pasekiyot. Vayama Siftamei Kabeba Beit Lachem. Now we have uh, um, the next story. Sorry, Esther. Yes. If he's Boaz, why is he not just called Boaz? It's interesting because um, if son, well, <laughs> that would be that would be that would be too easy, wouldn't it? Right. If son, they say, is Avlatzon, that he was the father of the flock, and Boaz in him is strength, right? So it, it's possible that, you know, if you're following the idea of the Gemara, that he, he changed his stripes, like after this 
Uh, he became, you know, more, uh, you know, a greater person and a more compassionate person. And it's actually through his child with Ruth that he, um, he achieves the greatness of being the great grandfather of David Amel. I mean, the, yeah, the great grandfather of David Amelach and in the line of, of for Mashiach. So I, I must say that I don't have an answer because are we supposed to take it as, you know, different personalities or different person? I'll tell you the Das Mikra just says it's not the same person. It's made Lechem up north, and it's he's from Zavulin and Gansin. And I find that's very difficult that the the that Mikra does that because really, what are you going to do with Boaz? Where are you going to put Boaz? Boaz was also a Shofet. It was also the time of the Shoftim. Mm -hmm. So we have to put him some. There is no other judge from uh, that area, from that from that tribe. I don't think there's any other. No. Asniel, yeah, Asniel is from Yehuda, but that's much earlier. It's a very interesting question. I'll have to think about that and look up and see if I can find some answer for you, but that's what the Chazal say. Thanks. <laughs> okay. All right. Pasuk Yud Aleph. Vayishpot HaCharab at Yisrael, Elon has Vuloni, Vayishpot Yisrael, Eser Shanin. I think we have zero information about Elon as Vuloni, except that he judged for 10 years and he was, you know, from Zvulun. I mean, if you look in the map, Zvulun is up north here. So, uh, I alone don't know exactly where any of this is. Uh, I think one of the things we do have to see is that the judges are from all the different tribes and all different areas. And Pasekir Gimel, by Yishpot Acharavit Yisrael, Avdon ben Hillel Harpir Atoni. Avdon ben Hillel. Now, I think that's important to note that Hillel was a Tanakh name, not just a Gemara name. And this man, Avdon, was from Pir Aton. What we have here is no identification of a tribe. Elon is clearly from Zvula, right? Uh, Ifzan is from Beit Lechem, which is Yehuda. Yair and Tola are given their tribal affiliations. We don't know what tribe Avdon is. On the other hand, in Pasuk, uh, <clears throat> Yudalit says, Okay, so again, we have this story with a, with a judge with lots and lots of kids. He had 40 sons and 30 grandsons, and they rode on 70 young donkeys. So <laughs> what's the deal with all these judges and all their many, many children and their many, many donkeys? And we had this also back in the, um, in chapter 10. I'll show you in chapter 10, we have a second. Right, we have <coughs> Tola Ben Pua, we don't have anything about his kids here, but Yair had 30 sons riding on 30 donkeys and they had 30 towns, right? So, and then we have Ifsan who has 30 sons and 30 daughters. And we have Gidon who has 70 sons. And then we have Abdon who has 40 sons and 30 grandsons on his 70, 
what, what is the deal with this? So it seems as if the indication is that the, the show fate, we want to show that he's a great person, that he's very successful, that he has a lot of children. There's something a little weird about it, a little weird about it. And we have to always go back to the Chumash. The Chumash tells us that a king should not have too many wives, should not have too many horses, should not have too much money. And he should, in other words, we are asked that the judge, that the leader, and the judge is a status of a king, that they should have a certain amount of humility. Too many wives, too much money, too many horses. Now, it's true that these are donkeys, and donkeys are definitely considered a much more humble animal than a horse, which is considered a symbol of arrogance and you know warlike. But there's definitely a little bit of a sour note to me at any rate, that this is what we're told about these people, that they're so powerful and they're so wealthy and they have so many kids. Strange. So that's very strange stuff there because what's Hara Amaleki, right? What's it doing in Hara Ephraim? But the only thing we could say is we probably should put Avdon into the tribe of Ephraim because he's in the land of, he's buried in the land of Ephraim. So it's likely that he's Ephraim. So we have in this chapter Menashe leader, we have an Ephraim leader, a Zebulun leader, we have a Yehuda leader, four different leaders. And these people are all sort of, you know, except for Yiftach, Yiftach gets a good chunk of time. We have a lot to learn from Yiftach. But in terms of, <clears throat> in terms of the Sefer Shoftim, these are sort of filling in gaps. And that's why it's, it's hard to, it's hard to imagine that Ibsen is anyone other than Boaz. Because otherwise, you know, where do we put Boaz? And then the next uh, four chapters, like I said, that's going to be the story of Shimshon. Fascinating story. So what do we learn from this? We learn that we have a couple of problems here. We learn that, you know, it says in Taylor, right? They, they mixed up with the nations. They learned their ways. The, the violence that we see with Yiftah, the, the human sacrifice themes that are just they're very, very not Jewish. They're very, very problematic. And we see these things coming up and we, you know, we don't, our cycle is broken. Things are not going well. And, you know, we have to see from here how, how, how can we, you know, improve our chinuch? Like we also are, you know, absorb values from outside from outside of Judaism. And we have to be very, very careful not to let that, you know, take over our Yiddishkeit. There's things out there that really are very problematic and it seeps in, the influence seeps in, and we have to, you know, work on our chinuch, that we raise our, our, our kids, you know, in our values and not in the values of the world around us. I think that's one of the big lessons here. And of course, of course, the um, the, <clears throat> the lessons of the um, Midot problems that we saw, very, very, very great Midot problems. Certainly, uh, arrogance is probably on the high list here of things that we should take away from the story of Yiftach to avoid 
the pitfalls of arrogance and um, and it led to such a terrible amount of death and destruction. We could have been as humble as Gidon. We would have been. Uh, we would have saved so many lives. 